So beginning in verse 26 of chapter 1 of James. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Father, I just thank you so much for saving us. God, I thank you for reaching down into our depravity, for reaching down into our helplessness. God, for reaching down into our our spiritual poverty and our aloneness. God, that, that you have have come after us, that you visited us, that you redeemed us. God, we rejoice in the gospel. Lord, show us by the power of your Holy Spirit, show us its beauties this morning. Show us the the marvelous, marvelous beauty of the gospel today. Father, help us to be doers of the word. I pray that our faith would be accurately lived out and reflected in, in works that are just like you. God, please open our hearts today. Please speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So the phrase begins, if anyone thinks he is religious. Now, I'm going to make an assumption here today, and and I think after you let me explain it a little bit, I think think you'll you'll say it's fair. I, I would say everybody in this room thinks they're religious, okay? Now, now the only reason that you might not is because... Religion is not a very good word for you, okay? So for the last 20, 30 years, most of us in the Christian life have really not chosen to call ourselves religious. Does that make sense? Um, it's not been a great word in, in Christian culture. Um, part, part of that is that we often contrast it to a relationship with Jesus Christ. How many times have you said or have you heard somebody say, hey, no, 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 I'm, I'm not religious. I have a relationship with Jesus, okay? Now, what people mean by that is um, religion had been come to know, or religion, the word religious had kind of come to mean your own like efforts. Like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church and I'm going to do this. And I'm going to give a little money and, and that's, that's my religion, you know? And uh, so that's why it, the word itself had fallen out of favor. It's not a bad word, though. Like, uh, we, we shouldn't not like it. I mean, I, I agree that our, our culture tends to look at it in an unhealthy way. But, man, some of the greatest writers in Christian life use it. James used it. Jonathan Edwards used it. John Calvin used it. Uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote a great book called Religious Affections. And so it's not a bad word. Let me tell you how I think James means this word, okay? So when he says, if anyone thinks he's religious, what I think what James means by, his, by the word religious, and this is bore out in the Greek, is that it is the practical, observable qualities of your life of faith. Okay, so here, here's the way Jason understands it, okay? What I understand him to mean is if you are connected to the risen Jesus Christ, there's things coming out of your life, okay, right? So if, if I have repented of my sins, put my faith in Jesus, and been dwelt by the Holy Spirit, then guess what? That's gonna practically change me. Like there's gonna be things that flow out of my life from my connection to Jesus, from the Holy Spirit living inside of me. What flows out of my life? James would call that your religion. Okay, he would call that your religion, right? And so as he's talking to people, he's saying, all right, if any of you think you're religious, what he means by that is if any of you think you are living out your relationship with Jesus Christ, you're living out a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, that's the way he's meaning this word. Now, 
again, in the last hundred years, it, it, the word has fallen into dis, disrepute simply because what a lot of people meant by, by religious was, hey, I attend some services, you know, I, I listen to that dude up there, um, I, I eat a donut, drink a little coffee while I'm there, and if I like the song, I might sing a bit, you know, and that's my religion. Well, that's super unimpressive. I don't want to be known for that either, you know, like, if that, if that, is that what it means to be a Christian? Jesus Christ was tortured on a cross and murdered and put in a tomb. And after three days, he raises again in this glorious, blazing resurrection power. And he gathers his followers and gives them a mission and then rockets into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. And my response to that is, well, I'll go hang out there three Sundays a month, maybe, if I don't have anything else to do. Listen to a guy sing a little song. That'll be my religion. Okay, I agree with you. I don't like that either, okay? But that's not the way James is using this word, okay? James is saying, you know, if you're a believer, then you think you're religion. What, what is the practical expression of your faith in Jesus Christ? Okay, now, as you're trying to answer that, okay, so hopefully you're answering that right now. Yeah, hopefully many of you are saying, hey, I'm a believer. I'm connected to Jesus. I am born again. The Holy Spirit lives in me. And this is how, this is how that looks in my life, okay? So hopefully you're answering that in your mind right now. This is what that looks like in me. Okay, now, let's look at what James says. James says, okay, great, you're answering that question. But if you don't bridle your tongue, you're deceiving your heart and your religion is worthless, all right? So James gives a negative here, Okay. So he says, okay, whatever, whatever you got going on in your mind that this is my religion, he says, let me, let me ask you a question. If you don't bridle your tongue, if your words are not transformed, then guess what? Your, your expression of Christianity is worthless. All right, now, why does James pick? He almost like, it seems like he's almost like picking this one thing out of the air. Why does he pick your words, the words that you use, as this kind of test if your religion is actually genuine. Why, why does he pick your words? Well, here's why he picks your words, okay? Because today, did you know this? Today, you and I, we're gonna use our words to express how we feel about our spouse, our kids, our dog, our life. We're gonna express our happiness, sadness, frustration, anger, and boredom. We're gonna build friendships with our words or we're gonna tear down friendships with our words. We're gonna order food and buy kitty litter and commentate on sporting events. And we're gonna express our opinion on politics and the impeachment and the weather and the economy and the church. And we're gonna describe our hopes and dreams and failures and disappointments and expectations. You're gonna use your words for a lot of stuff, okay? So do you see, do you see the direction that James is going? Okay, because we're we, he knows we're tempted to say, well, hey, Mike, expression of Christianity is where I'm at at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. That's my expression of Christianity. And James is like, no, 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 no. Your expression of Christianity is coming out of you 24-7. It's coming out of you at Tuesday at 3 and Monday at 9 and Thursday at 2 and Friday at 1. It's coming out of you in your words, all right? Your expression of who Jesus is. In other words, Jesus Christ, if he is your king, if he is your savior, if he is your Lord, then he should be coming out of you all the time, particularly in the words that you speak. Now, this is not a new concept for the Bible. The Bible from the beginning, even the Old Testament, was telling us that the words that you, that you say actually are an expression of what you believe. Psalm 141, 3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. The psalmist is saying, God, you know, I'm asking you, I'm asking you to get a guard, get somebody to guard my mouth, God. Like put put a watch over my lips. Psalm 39, 1 and 2 
Say, I said I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as I am in the presence of the wicked. My favorite's Ephesians 4, 29. And it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear your words. A believer who's connected to Jesus, your words ought to be a means of grace. They're Jesus flowing out of you. And so do you see why? Why James says, man, if you say you're religious, if you say that you're living out a faith in the resurrected Jesus and yet your words, you don't bridle them, you don't, you don't control them, you don't put a muzzle on them, you're not careful with them, so that, that kind of faith expression is worthless. You know what Jesus said? He said in Matthew um, I think it's uh, 12, 11, 12. He said in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34, he said, you brood of vipers, how can you speak what is good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance. So whatever fills your heart is gonna come out of your mouth. So if your heart is full of pride, okay? If your heart is full of pride, Listen, nobody, nobody says that, okay? So nobody walks around, nobody, especially in church or in, in, in Christian circles or religious circles, nobody walks around saying, guys, I am puffed up with pride, all right? Nobody says that, okay? But you know what does happen is if your heart remains unchanged, you know what happens? That leaks out. It doesn't matter how, how badly you try to control it or how, how strongly you try to muzzle that. If your heart is unchanged, if your heart is full of pride, it's going to come out in arrogance and self-promotion and self-exaltation and being superior to others. And, and if your heart is full of anger, it's going to come out in, in cutting words and wounding words and words that rip people up and destroy people's reputation. If your heart is full of anxiety, it's going to come out in self-protecting words. If your heart is full of lies, it's going to come out in deceptive words and misleading words and exaggerating words and slanderous words, the kind of religion that does not change your words, James says, is worthless. See, that's a worthless expression of, of, of Christianity, of the resurrected Jesus Christ. That is a self-deceiving. He said, you're fooling yourself. You're not just trying to fool others. You're, you're actually fooling yourself. If you describe, you say, I am a religious person. My life reflects the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, my King, and yet my words rip people up. James says, you are kidding yourself. That is a worthless expression of faith in Jesus the King. It's not about ceremonies. It's not about your geography on Sunday morning. Though those things obviously will be impacted if you have faith in Jesus Christ, but faith in Jesus Christ is lived out in things like the words that you speak in a practical way. So, okay, James, he says that's not right religion. So the kind of religion that says I'm connected to Jesus, but your mouth spews all kinds of anger and pride and hurtful things. James like, man, that's, that's worthless there. That, that is self-deception. Okay, well, James, tell us what is the appropriate response? What is the appropriate response? Action, living out of my faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ. We find that in verse 27. So look at verse 27, okay? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. All right, so two things there, okay? So James is saying, 
Here is pure and undefiled, all right? Those are, those are powerful words. He's saying this is a genuine expression of what it means to have faith in Jesus, okay? What does it mean? It, it, it means to visit widows and orphans and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, let's unpack those two things, okay? First of all, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction, all right? I want to ask you this question. What is God's deal with widows and orphans? Why is he... Why is he so hung up on that? Like, like, have you ever noticed how much that's in the scripture? Like, how many times a Bible story contains a story about a widow? You know, you've got Elijah and the, and the widow with the oil. You've got the widow of Nain and her dead son. You've got um, the widow with the two small copper coins. You've got Luke 18, the widow uh, who, who, who was relentless in the, in the wicked judge. You know, over and over and over and over, you get these stories about the widow. And then you have these, these, these stories in the Old Testament that ought to make you shudder, okay? Or these commands, these, these, these verses. L- listen to some of them. Here's Exodus 22. Exodus 22, 22, and I'm going I'm to read several more verses after 22. Okay, Exodus 22, 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. All right, okay. Now listen to God, man, he gets testy here, okay? Verse 23, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wife shall become widows and your children fatherless. My, that's serious stuff. Anybody else reading that? Like God is, God is really serious about you not mistreating the orphan and the widow. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 29 He says this, and the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you or the sojourner or the fatherless or the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord may God may bless you in all your work and the work of your hands. In other words, if you take care of them, I'll take care of you. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 19. He says this about justice. He said, cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people said, amen. So why is God so, why is, why is, this, why is this the pure and undefiled expression of, of, of our relationship with Jesus Christ? Why is God so heavy-handed with the widow and with the orphan? Let me answer that for you, okay? Here's the answer to that. Because We are the widow and the orphan, okay? We are the spiritually impoverished, all right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is God doing exactly what he's commanding you and I to do, okay? Let me me fill you in on something. None of us got into the kingdom because we had it all together. None of us got into the kingdom of heaven because we had all kinds of works and all kinds of good deeds and all kinds. None of us got in because God needed us. None of us got in because we had something to offer God. You know what the Bible says about us? We were poor and wretched and blind and miserable. We were lost in our sins. We were destitute. We were spiritually impoverished. We had zero hope on our own. And God, you know what he did? He came to us. He reached down out of heaven and he plucked us out of sin and out of hell. And he set us at his own table and adopted us into his own family and gave us eternal life. That is the gospel. That is who we are. And now he turns around and says, if you have that gospel, if you embrace that gospel, 
then you will be like me. That's why this is so important. That's why he's so testy on this. Because at the very heart of why you and I, if you're a believer here today, at the very heart of why I will never go to hell, why I will spend a billion years in an eternity of pleasure and joy forever, the heart of that is because God loves and came to the helpless. Now, if God stoops down like that, then if I'm his child, if you're his child, if his spirit is inside me, if we have the mind of Christ, if we are doers of his word, what will that look like? Verse 27, we will visit widows and orphans in their affliction and we will keep ourselves unstained from the world. Now let me ask you this question, who are those people today? Who's the sojourner? Who's the widow? Who's the orphan? Who's the helpless? Who's the destitute? You know? Man, just look around. Let me give you a whole bunch of options. Foster kids. It's the orphans in Orissa, India that I just talked to you about in the Candomal region. It's the homeless of Woodward. It's the refugee. It's the disabled. It's the single mother living in systemic poverty. It's the elderly woman living on $800 a month, Social Security. It's the believer in Chattisga, India, living on a dollar a day, been over in the rice fields day after day. It's the 60-year-old inmate who became a disciple of Jesus while he was incarcerated, and now he's being released at age 60, having been in prison 25 years he doesn't even have any idea how to function on the outside it is those people it is them and now what are we supposed to do what what does it mean that i'm connected to jesus christ what does it mean that he saved me from my sins what does that look like i visit i i cannot tell you how much i love that he does not say you got to solve all your problems. And you know, here, here's why I love the word visit. He does not say, man, you got you to solve this systemic problem. you got to fix all these things. Because you know what happens when we think of it that way? You know what happens when we look into need and we're like, oh, my goodness, I don't know how to fix that. I don't know how to deal with that. That's messy. That'll mess me up. If I get involved in that, that's, 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 I, don't, I don't even want anywhere near that. That's complicated. No, he says, just go. You go and, and, you, and you visit. Let me tell you about that word. It's beautiful. The, the Greek word for visit in the Greek lexicon, one of the definitions is careful inspection. Okay? What does it mean to visit the widow and the orphan? It's not just, hey, drop by, talk to him about the weather, nice day. You know? No, no, no. When, when he says visit, it's, it's a careful inspection. You're actually entering into their world. You're entering into their world and you're trying to understand their situation and you're trying to engage wherever possible. Let me tell you the most beautiful place in all the scriptures that this very word is used. It's when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's when Mary gave birth to our Savior in Bethlehem and Zechariah, the priest, begins to sing a song and here's his song. This is in Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, For he has visited and redeemed his people. What's Christmas about? You know what Christmas is about? It's about God stepping out of the heavens, out of the glory and privileges of the throne room of heaven and stepping into human flesh and visiting us. He came to our world. He put on our suffering. He came and he he met us in our own pain and he, he redeemed us. 
Let me take you all the way to the end, okay? So if we go to the end of the, of the scriptures, we go to the end of, of judgment. On the judgment day, you and I are all going to be here in this place. You'll be on one side or the other of, of God's right hand, all right? And on the judgment, says he will separate the sheep from the goats, and then he will say, all right, these are my beloved. These are my people. These are the ones who turned from their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ and treasured him above all else. And let me give you the evidence of their religion. Here's the evidence. Here's the expression of their faith. Matthew 25. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. All of that. That's what James is talking about. Right there, guys. What, what's pure and undefiled religion? How does one respond to the gospel? How, does, how do people like us who, who, were, who were spiritually impoverished orphans headed for hell with no way to save ourselves and God reached down and plucked us out of that and gave us a place at the table of the king. How do we live that out? This way right here. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a prisoner, you came to me. I, I was sick and you visited me. Jacob, come up here for a sec. I think I'm okay, but um, I did this in the first service, and I fell apart, and it kind of ruined the rest of the sermon. And so I'm going to have Jacob read it. This is, a, this is an article by John Piper. If, you, if any of you have the, word, the, the book A Godward Life, um, it, it, man, it's a, great, it's a collection of John Piper's new, uh, newsletters. Uh, I read this back in probably the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, and I've never forgot it. This, this article marked me. And when I, when, I, when I saw this passage, I thought of this article. I want you to read it. I want you to go home and read it. I'm going to have Jacob read the first couple paragraphs. Um, this orphan deal is pretty sensitive on me. And, and, but I want him to read this. And I want you to go home. And, and you can type in, just go to Desiring God, Desiring God, and go to the search engine and type in vermin. And you can get the article. It's like a page and a half. Jacob, I want you to read uh, just this red right here from here to here. Make sure this mic's on, Larry, for me. Thank you. <clears throat> A local businessman in Brazil called them vermin, garbage. If we let them grow up, they will be criminals, a blight on our society. There are an estimated 12 million homeless children in the streets of Brazil. The parents lost them in the crowds, put them out, died. However they got there, they are there. They beg, they steal, they sell their bodies, they eat garbage. They start scared, they end scared, hard and dead. Some policemen and others moonlight by contracting to kill street children so that they will not menace the city. In 1992, an average of 400 of these children were killed monthly in Brazil. Same in other big cities. The Philippine government estimates that there are 15,000 child prostitutes in Manila between ages of 9 and 12. One estimate suggests that in Thailand there are 800,000 girls between 12 and 16 years old involved in prostitution. Is this your thought? Is this your first thought, merely human? Thank you. 
That was written in the early 90s, and so I know those statistics have changed. Um, probably not for better. Um, the rest of that article is really good. I want you to read it, but it, it talks about how we look at something like that and we think, you know what? Raising a kid in Woodward, Oklahoma, your children, your, your children that are raised with constant love and affection and nurturing, with plenty of food and everything they need, even they struggle, right? Even they're broken. Even they sometimes twist off. Now, how, how are we going to respond to these kind of kids? How are we going to respond to these kind of people? And a lot of times we, we just shut down because we don't know the answer, but we can't do that. You know why? Because James says that pure and undefiled religion is to visit. It's to go. It's to engage. It's, it's to do something. It's to respond and fostering or respite care or physically stopping by the home of a deprived child or being the best team kid teacher you could be or, or, or visiting the home of a needy widow or, or, or all the, the, the numerous uh, elderly in Woodward that are living on a fixed income. It's a single mom. It's getting trained for prison ministry. It is in some way entering into that world, leaving our world and entering into that world with careful inspection. An attempt to meet those needs. I need to tell you something. One of the heavy things on me today is that if you do what I'm telling you to do, it's going to sting you. You're going to suffer. And that's hard. Like I, I always like those sermons where if you do what I'm telling you to do, you're, it's, it's, just, it's just all good. Like don't beat your wife. You know what? That just that's just good and good, isn't it? But if you do this, you're gonna get stung. And I think in the end, you will be forever blessed. This is costly compassion. Have you ever thought about the uh the Good Samaritan story? You you know the story, right? Guy falls in a ditch, um, he's beaten, he's robbed, he's left for dead. Levite goes by, or priest goes by, pass on the other side. Levite goes by, pass on the other side. And then Samaritan stops. Have you ever, have you ever put that in your own context? Like, like you're, you're hauling your cattle to the sale barn, and, and you come across a guy in the ditch, okay? And just put this in, in, in context, okay? A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came there uh, where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went up, and he bound, him, uh, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. So you, you get him. You go get some first aid, you go get medicine, you go get bandages, you, you, you fix him up as best you can. And then it says he put him on his own animal. You get him in your truck, and he brings him to an inn. He checks him into a motel. He takes care of him, okay? And then he hires somebody. It said the next day he took out two denarii and he gave it to the innkeeper. So he hires somebody. He goes to home health or he goes and hires a nurse and, and, and he arranges for this guy to have meals brought in and, and to have medical care every day and for someone to check on him saying, take care of him and whatever more you need, I'll repay when I come back. And then he goes and takes his cattle to the sale barn and maybe he's gone for a couple days and he comes back. This is, this is costly. And not only is it costly, but this kind of 
of response to the gospel is pure and undefiled religion because it's not done for any kind of payback. You, you know what good ministries are, like easy ministries? They're those ministries where you minister to somebody and they're, they're thankful and they're they, they do what you say, and it, it's like a blessing deal. And it doesn't, doesn't stop. You know, here's what we love. We, we want a ministry where it's like somebody comes in and shambles, and we sit down, and we're like, hey, have you thought about this verse? And they read that verse, and they're like, oh, that's, you're, yes, you know. And all of a sudden, they change, and their life has changed. And they, and they go home, and every week they call you, and you're like, you changed my life. That was so wonderful. You gave me that verse. And, you know, that, that's the kind of ministries that we like. That is not pure and undefiled religion. Pure and undefiled religion is to enter into this with no expectation of an earthly payback. Luke 14, 12 says, He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you'll be repaid in the resurrection of the just. This is all about me and Jesus. Why is this pure and undefiled religion? Because it's not about me and this person. It's about me and Christ. It's about Jesus. You saved me. You plucked me out of hell. I was that helpless person. I was that, that person headed to hell. And you came to me and you visited me. It's not about an earthly payoff. These ministries are just hard. They're they're done by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're dirty and they're thankless and they're demanding and they're difficult at times. We got a a letter in uh, from the office this week. And um, it's from someone that we have uh, ministered to. And um, gone out of the way for I know Dan and I have been together on it quite a few times, um, just trying to meet some pretty heavy needs, some pretty difficult things. And so we got a, got a message in today at the office, and I'll summarize it. You're a failure, you're a failure, you're a failure. Now try again and try not to be a failure. And I told Dan, I was like, dude, we're doing something right. Like, this is exactly how it's supposed to go. Isn't that this? Isn't that what Jesus just said? He said, you go after these kind of ministries. You go after these kind of things. And you listen, if we're the kind of people that we ain't going to be in a ministry if it don't work out with all blessing and bells and roses and thank you cards and confetti coming down from the sky for us. You know what James would say? Man, your deal is worthless. That's that's not the way Jesus operates. So, what is pure and undefiled religion? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And, okay, now, we don't have much time for the second part, but uh, we'll, we'll hit it later better, okay? And keep oneself unstained from the world. You know what I love about this is so often Christians are characterized as either one of two ways. They're either people that get in there and, and meet needs or they're people that pursue holiness, you know. 
And oftentimes it's like, it's like you're either one or the other. You're, you're either a person that meets needs, but you don't care so much about holiness and you don't care so much about sexual purity or, or morals or the morals of our country. Or you're a person over here that cares deeply about purity and about the church being pure and, and, and about sin being confronted, but you don't ever go over here and get your hands dirty in the messes of life. You know what James says? James says pure and undefiled religion is both those. It's both those. It's people that will jump into need for the glory of God. And it's people who will strive to keep themselves pure. When I, when I think of that phrase, pure and undefiled religion, is, is this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. I, honestly, my, the picture I have there is, is me trying to grease the, the implement on my, my, my dad's tractor uh, in the mornings without getting my shirt dirty. Okay? Um, I know it's possible. I never did it, but I know it's possible but not without great care and attention. You have to be paying attention to what you're doing. Here's what John tells us. John says in 1 John 2, 15, he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. And whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here, here's the way the Bible presents the world. The world is this way of thinking that is opposed to God. The world, the world is this, val, this value system, this priority system that is based all upon me and all upon possessions and position and, and how I look and what I get and getting my due. My friends, you were called out of that. Did you know that? When you were called to take up your cross and deny yourself, you were called out of that. When Jesus stepped into his ministry, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and if you're a believer, you were called out of that old world and now you're in a new kingdom. And the king has come. And now you're a part of a, of a new identity and you have a new way of seeing yourself. And now you, you, you realize that you're chosen by the king and you're redeemed and forgiven and justified and adopted and blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And now you operate different. You think different. You think about the world different. You think about yourself different. We're living in the kingdom. In the kingdom, the great ones are those who serve. In the kingdom, you can count it all joy. When you fall into various trials, the world doesn't understand that. In the kingdom, you can have an indomitable living hope because of what Christ has said he's going to do. In the kingdom, you can have joy inexpressible no matter your circumstances. In the kingdom, you can be anxious for nothing no matter what's hitting your life. In the kingdom, you can give thanks always and for everything because of your hope in Jesus Christ. And you are to be those separate people. You don't think like the world. You don't love like the world. You don't value what the world values. You're a citizen of the king. And you, you, have, you have remained separate. I'm going to start over. If anyone thinks he's religious, I, I, I think I'm talking to people that do. Right? I think I'm talking to people that, that say, I'm born again. I put my faith in Christ. I'm joined to the resurrected Jesus. If anyone thinks he's religious, that religion should be expressed constantly in what comes out of your mouth, continually in your going after the hard places and the hard people. Not to solve it all. You won't. You won't. But you're going to visit. 
you're going to enter in there. And you're going to love not because of what you get back, but because of who your king is. Let's pray. Father, help us to be these people, God. Father, help us to respond in obedience to your word. God, give us this heart. God, I, I pray that the beauty of the gospel would be real this morning. God, I pray that, God, that the hope that we have in Christ, that the, the reality of our brokenness, the reality of our depth of, of lostness, God, would hit us this morning. The reality that we have no hope apart from you, Jesus, apart from you coming down and visiting us and bringing us into your family. God, help us to live that hope out, to live that gospel out all around us this morning. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.